2: John Copenhagen and
1: Al Warren. Third
0: on KC. 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside.
1: And 1050
0: AM Palm Springs. All right, welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. Is, we're going to talk about a book that. It grabs you by the throat and never lets go. Does that sound exciting? It does. Yeah. Well, we've got the author of it here, and uh, the book is called Kill All Your Darlings, and the author is David Bell. Thank you for being here.
2: Yeah, thank you. I I just want to say that books are allowed to grab people by the throat and never let go, but authors are not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, not and get caught.
2: It's a double standard that they have for the book and the author.
0: <laughs> my book, my choice. Right. <laughs> anyway. Well, uh, so listen, um, it looks like um, you write these kinds of books that, um, I don't know, they're suspense. They sort of, uh, they're kind of crime fiction, psychological thrillers, um, how do you put a book like this together? Like, uh, do you actually get into a role of, of, of one of the characters and then kind of develop that around that character or something else?
2: I guess it usually starts with a situation. Uh, I'm trying to think of a situation that I can put a character in and, and then that situation can get much worse for the character. Um, because I always say that writing is the, is the endeavor where you can try your best to torment someone and make their life worse, and it's acceptable because that's what we do as authors. We put our characters in these situations and try to make it worse and worse for them until they figure something out. Um, so usually it begins with that situation, just, just what would happen if this person was in this situation and then where would it go from there? So in the case of this book, I was thinking, what if you were a college professor who had stolen a manuscript from a student who you thought was dead, and the student turns up very much alive right when the book is published? And where's it gonna go from there?
0: Oh, well, then you kill the student.
2: Well, I mean, (laughs) I, I teach at a university, so I have certainly had that thought before about <laughs> wanting to kill students, but not, not for that reason. But no. yes, I understand that impulse.
0: Yeah. But okay. So now you've got this situation set up uh, it, it, very intriguing. So from there, um, who do you side is going to be the teacher and who do you decide is going to be, you know, the, uh, the student. And, and I ask that because you say that you, you teach as well. So, there's sort of a connection there for you with one of the characters.
2: Yeah, obviously. So in this book, the protagonist is, is the college professor and the creative writing professor, and that's what I do for my day job. So there, so there, that was the closest identification I've ever had to one of my protagonists, because in the past – Um, I'm writing about characters who did not have my occupation and and I had to make up an occupation for them. And since I've never actually had a real job, that's always the hardest part of writing the book is figuring out what do people do in the real world who have real jobs. Um, So in this case, I didn't have to think about that because my protagonist was a writer and a college professor, which are two unreal jobs uh, that I have. So that was a little easier for me. Um, but, yeah, I, so, the, so the professor is the protagonist there. Um, but there are two other point-of-view characters who are both students. Well, one is a former student and one is a current student. So I drew on my experience with my students uh, to, to write about those characters as well.
1: Well, I wonder, too, um, you know, you, you're writing a, a lot of suspense crime, suspense thrillers, where um, the protagonist is basically an ordinary person as – I guess opposed to being a detective or a PI or an agent. Uh, what, what attracts you to that type of character?
2: Yeah, I do write about ordinary people who have these extraordinary things happen to them. And, and I think that I do that because I, I, the, there are lots of books about those characters who are agents or former agents or cops or whatever. And I love so many of those books. But at a certain point, um, it's hard for me to relate to those characters because they know how to, you know, like if you read a, a, a Jack Reacher book, which are amazing books, but, you know, Reacher can kick anybody's ass at any <laughs> time, right? He can he can take on like seven people at a time and yeah. kick their ass, right, and all that. Um, and I have never had that experience in my <laughs> life of being able to kick seven people's asses. Six I could do, but when it gets to seven, I'm out. Um, so there's a certain point where it, where it feels like that's not, most people cannot do those things. Um, so, it's, so in some ways, it's more interesting to see the person who is just the regular person. And I think to some extent, we probably all have thought, what would happen if I was forced into this situation where I was fighting for my life or I was accused of a crime that I didn't commit? Or someone was coming after me, or I had to solve a crime, but i didn't have anything to fall back on besides my own brain you know the 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 mm. knife in the kitchen drawer um, or, or the lamp that I can hit someone over the head with i don 't have a gun i don't know martial arts i don't i don't have any special skills like that what 's it like if if someone with that those limited abilities and like most people mm finds themselves in over their heads and has to figure out a way out of it. So to me, that's an intriguing scenario to explore, and it's the one that I've pretty much explored in all my books.
0: It's okay. very relatable. Yeah, Queen Latifah can kick six, seven people's ass. <laughs> you, you, you can't? Come on.
2: I haven't... I guess you're talking about the equalizer. I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen that yet. I know she's in the the remake there. I mean, I know when Denzel did it in the movies, he could do it. Yeah,
0: well, they don't really show her doing it. She just walks in the room, and it goes silent, and then... Then you see her face, and she's walking out, and everyone's laying on the floor. So it's not like that. Hey,
2: i got to tell you, I would not mess with Queen Latina. I
0: wouldn't. I just wouldn't. No. In
2: real life, we're on TV. No, exactly.
0: But But I I don't think she actually has to do it.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm sure there would be stunt people involved to some extent. Well,
0: yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. So you're telling the story from three points of view, then.
2: Yeah, so the point of view of the professor, the point of view of the student who had their manuscript stolen, who comes back saying, hey, what the heck are you doing, dude? And the point of view of another student who is, um, in some ways, that that student, uh, her name is Rebecca, Um is, is the more normal character in the book. She's more like the every person who's observing what's going on. And, and she finds herself playing a larger role in the, in the story and the unraveling of the mystery than she would have expected, or even that I expected when I started writing the book. Um, but, yeah, so those three points of view there.
0: Mm. So, um, so these characters, then, um, I'm just wondering if you, um, when you're writing, their script so to speak or what they're thinking and saying and doing so do you put yourself into that person do you kind of pretend you're that person and figure what you would do or does this come from somewhere else
2: I think it is like pretending to be that person Um, in a way it's like the way an actor plays a character, and, and, and in order for an actor to play a character, they, they might have to imagine a backstory for that character. They might have to think about, oh, you know, this character, you know, uh, came from a nice home or came from a rotten home or, you know, blah, 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 blah. In, in the same way, I think writers do that when we get into other characters' heads. We, we think about who these people are. We think about what what is motivating them, what their backstory is, how they ended up in this place, even if that's not stuff that goes into the book, and a lot of it may not go into the book, but I think that's just a way for a writer to get an entry point to a character to just understand a little bit about them and who they are, and that's part of the fun of writing, and writing from multiple points of view like that, is saying, I I can pretend to be someone else, uh, I can pretend to be a younger person, and I can pretend to be an older person, I can pretend to be a killer, I can pretend to be whatever, um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, a, it's a safe, fun way to get inside someone else's skin for
1: a while. Do you hear your characters? Can, can you hear their voices? I mean, I know I hear voices <laughs> in, in my head when, when I write, uh, but I just wonder if, if you have an inner monologue um, or if you're you know, translating more images and symbols when you write.
2: No, I definitely hear them. I, I think it's essential for me, and I, I'm sure every writer is a little different and, and different writers have different ways of going about it. Like you're saying, some people may be more visual, and they may be they may be seeing things more vividly, um, and some writers may be hearing things more vividly. But for me, it's hearing. It's imagining the sound and the rhythms of people's voices in in regular life. When I know people, talk to people, listen to people, um, I note what they sound like and the rhythms of their voices and um, mm-hmm. the the little you know the little things that they do with their voice or their hand gestures or things like that which I think can tell you a lot about a person's personality. I mean, it, it, in many ways, someone's voice and someone's gestures are are, some of, the, those are the, some of the most prominent things that we know about people, obviously, aside from what they look like. Um, and so, so I've always found myself paying attention to those things a lot. When I was a kid, um, I can remember, you know, if adults were talking. Like, when I was a kid, there was a woman who lived across the street from us Um, And she was this woman. She was a little older than my parents. And my parents were old. Um, But she, she knew everything that was going on in the neighborhood. She knew everybody's business in the neighborhood. And so she would talk to my mom or my dad about it. And I can just remember listening to her talk and listening to these stories she was telling about other people. And that was so fascinating just to listen to people. I didn't like to talk to people, but I liked to listen to people and eavesdrop on people um, from when I was very young. So anyway, I think that's something that some writers do. You listen, you listen to the rhythms of speech, and then you, that's a way to understand who people are and then put them in the
0: book that way. How, how far do you go? Like when you're one in one of the characters, I'm thinking this would be a perfect book. You know, Dave, you could write this one. This is about a writer who's a professor who writes about taking a, pers- a student who thinks his book thinks he's dead and putting it out, and then he writes about it. And this is the whole story. Maybe you've got the whole story from a student you had. <laughs> Too confusing. Maybe
2: it's – so maybe now I have to write the story – of the professor who wrote the book about the person stealing yeah. the book from the student—is that what you're saying? Like, yeah. I, like I will infinitely be like,
0: <laughs>
2: writing books about the yeah. Yeah,
0: but think about it; it could be a series—a
2: series of like, like Russian nesting dolls, like, it's just, like. A Wow! Or like the the mirror, you know, the infinite regression of the yeah. Yeah, you you read my mind. Wow! (laughs) I'll drive myself crazy, but yes, I can try to do that. Yeah,
0: it doesn't matter what happens to you, right? It's it's about the art. That's
2: true. That's true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, and one thing I notice is this is considered a suspenseful, provocative novel novel about sexual harassment that still runs rampant in academia so if uh, is that kind of a point you wanted to put in this book? Was this something that you felt was important
2: yeah it was i i've tried I had tried to write this book a couple of other times um, and couldn 't quite get the idea off the ground. I wanted to write a story about and again it 's just because i 'm in this world. I wanted to write about a creative writing professor and, and a creative writing professor who uh, had some sort of um, uh, you know, mentorship or something with a student and there was a stolen manuscript, just I, like I had those ideas, but it never quite got off the ground until I I thought about this adding the element of the sexual harassment on on college campuses. And the reason I wanted to do that is that I've seen that as a student, I've seen that, as a faculty member, I've seen that, and it hasn't gone away just because we have Me Too. I mean, it's, um, people are more aware of it, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Um, and it's an incredibly toxic and harmful thing that happens to a community when someone abuses their power in that way. Um, and so that was just an element that I think brought the story to another level, or I certainly hope it did. That the book, I hope, is entertaining and page turning, but it's also trying to say something about an important issue as well.
0: Do you have to be careful about how you approach a subject like that with these days?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little tricky and, and I'm not complaining about this. I think it's a little tricky for a man to write about it um, because it's not an issue that affects men. Um, it's an issue that largely has affected women over the years. Um, I hope that, um, because I've had the experience of seeing it in academia and I've been in academia, um, that, that I have some credibility to talk about it. Um, you know, I, I don't have the experience of being harassed in that way. Um, and I'm not writing from the point of view. I mean, I'm writing from the point of view of, um, one character who experienced that, but, um, but so I, more than anything, I'm just trying to say, this is something that, is toxic for an entire community. Um, obviously, the person who is harassed um, suffers more than anyone else, but it, it ripples through a community. It creates a lot of distrust, a lot of suspicion, uh, and a lot of trouble for everybody.
0: Where did writing start for you? Like, where did, where, when did you start getting the bug to write stuff?
2: You know, I think I always had it because I always read And I grew up in a house, fortunately, where my parents read all the time. So, so reading was just part of life. Um, And I remember writing some stories when I was a kid, but I, I wasn't one of those people who sometimes you hear these writers who are like, oh, as soon as I could write, I was, you know, I was writing story after story. And I was not like that. But I can remember as I got older, you know, when I got into high school and got into college. I started to think this could be a profession that, you know, that that these books that I read and that I read in school, there's actually someone on the other end who wrote them. Um, And they're not all dead because, you know, sometimes it can feel like all these writers who were reading are these dead people or these people who were living in Paris or whatever, or New York City, and I was living in the middle of the country. And all of those places seem very far away. But occasionally we would read a book by a writer who was alive. And it would be someone who, you know, lived in the middle of the country. Like I remember reading The Outsiders in eighth grade. And, you know, here was this writer. I mean, not obviously there was a fact that she wrote when she was very young. But it was also that she was from Oklahoma and she was writing this book about Oklahoma. And it was just like oh, so she's almost just like a regular person who did this, right? Not like she didn't have to be off running with the bulls to write this book. You know, she wrote about probably stuff she saw growing up. And so I just started to think about that more as I got older and, and started to think maybe this could be a profession that I would try. And besides, I wasn't good at anything else. So I had to do something. You know? <laughs> so, so
0: when you, when you can't do anything, you write? Is that kind of?
2: Yeah, no. No, when you can't do anything you teach. That's what right. yeah, right. <laughs> um, I kid, forgive me fellow teachers. Yeah. Um no, I think I think that you, you know, you probably anybody who's who's who writes understands that um I think that to, maybe to some extent a lot of writers go through it where we almost hope something else will present itself to us. You know, like ah, I wish I could just be an accountant. I wish I could <laughs> just do that, right? Um, because this other thing is going to be hard and, and uncertain and insecure and difficult. Um, but at a certain point, I think writers, people who are really writers, realize this is the thing I have to do, when I, and, and there's not much choice, and I might as well just uh, sit down and start doing it. it and I'm going to be terrible at it for a long time, maybe forever, but um, I'm not going to get any better unless I try.
0: I wonder, but what was it that um, lit the fire for you to actually think, you could have something published. You know, like there's there's people that read a lot and can even write and and be into, you know, literature and reading and all that stuff. But to, to actually put your thoughts down or put down um, some sort of a story and then send it in to be published or put it out there so other people can read it, it's kind of an exposure of some of your feelings and thoughts and a story you create So in a way, that makes you kind of vulnerable. I just wonder, uh, was there something that gave you that? I I call it courage to actually do that.
2: Gosh, um, I, I think it was just that I was so, so hungry and determined to do it. And that I do think that, and I look back on this and I think, I seem incredibly stupid and naive to have thought this, but I look back on it and I thought, when I started writing, I remember in college, so the summer between my junior and my senior year of college, I went home for the summer, and I can very clearly remember one day I was there in my bedroom, you know, in my parents' house, and it just, this realization just landed on me, this is my last year of school. Like, I've been in school since I was five, and now I'm 21, and and this is it. it you know, come May... I'm out. I'm like, I'm off the payroll, like I have to go do something with my life. And I had no idea what to do. And I thought, well, maybe I should try to be a writer. And I really did think early on at that point, I thought, well, okay, I want to be a writer. I'm going to start writing some short stories and I'll send them to magazines and they'll get published. I thought like it was that easy. I don't know why I idiotically thought that I would just start sending my stories out and they would get published. Maybe it's just that by the time I figured out how hard it was and, and how many rejections were going to come in, I was, I was in it, and I couldn't back out at that point. But, but I, maybe it was a combination of um, naivete, desperation, um, hunger to do something, that, and I didn't have that hunger to do anything else in my life, right? There was no other profession that was calling out to me, so I just went
0: for it. You didn't want to do the McDonald's drive-thru or?
2: Well, I mean, I have had, I have had plenty of jobs like that, I will say. Um, So I know what that's like, too. Um, And I, and I guess I kind of thought, you know, you might be, you might be working at the McDonald's drive-thru and writing your short story on the side. You might even be publishing short stories or even books and still working at the McDonald's drive-thru because I realized pretty quickly, you're not going to get paid a lot of money doing this, at least certainly not when you're starting
0: out. Yeah. Yeah. But I I wonder that, um, I I wonder if that um, would make a person um, be even more hungry in a way. So like, you know, when you're out and and you realize that you're not making a whole lot of money with your first books and you're writing, um, you have to really want to keep writing in order to keep doing it, right? Uh, Because you're still doing another job and you're still or you living with your parents? You know, in your case, um, I wonder. So you you have to keep wanting to write. Do you know what I'm saying? Because it's in a way, it's a, it's kind of a suffer suffering.
2: Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, that's why I say I don't think anybody who who really doesn't want to do it would continue to do it because. Um, it, it takes so much time. Most writers don't publish until they're, I mean, just like writers publishing a first book. For most writers, that's probably getting into their 30s or their 40s or their 50s. It takes a long time to get there. Um, there's, there's no entry-level job as a writer. You can't come out of school and have someone say, well, yeah, come on into this office and write uh, from nine to five and we'll give you a salary and benefits, right? Um, it's, a, it's a long road to get published. Um, it's all that time while you're, getting, while you're trying to get published. You, people say to you, oh, well, what are you doing? And you say, oh, well, I'm a writer. And they say, oh, well, have you published anything? And you have to say, well, no. <laughs> and then you ask yourself, well, am I, am I really a writer? If I haven't published anything, because we, you know, we live in a results-oriented, bottom-line kind of society. So, like, if someone said, like, if I, if, if I was, you know, if I met somebody at a cocktail party and, you know, I was like, what do you do? And the person said, well, I'm a doctor. And I said, oh, well, you know, like, where do you work? What do you do? And they said, well, I don't actually practice medicine. <laughs> I mean, I'm a doctor. I'm a waiter. I mean, I hope to be a doctor. <laughs> you know, like... So, like, you know, if, I understand people's skepticism about a career if you haven't actually, you don't have a tangible thing to show from the career. But that's the lot of being a writer is that there will be many years where you haven't published anything or you've published, you know, one short story that, they, that you didn't even get paid for. Um, and, and, you know, and writers have to have something that gets them through that time where they say, yeah, I can get through this to the point where maybe there will be a tangible result, a book on the shelf or, or whatever that I can show somebody.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to work as a male prostitute. So yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you that's probably working a lot at night, so during the day you have time to write.
0: Well, yeah. and You know, okay. it's important that you have your, your, your writing time. If you're teaching in the day, five days a week, and you've also got – things to work out around your work, you know, uh, homework, as, as no pun intended. But when you're doing that, how do you decide when you're going to write and how do you set up a time? Are you able to just kind of go, okay, well, Saturday I've got from 11 to 3, so I'll write then. And are you able to sit down and actually write and be productive or do you have to wait till the mood hits?
2: I try to, uh, because of the teaching schedule, Uh, I try to work it out so that when it's time when it's time to write the first draft of a book that time falls when I have a break from school so our holiday break between semesters is six weeks so I try to work it out so that I've made the outline and done all that stuff all that pre writing work leading up to the break and then when it gets to be the break. I don't have anything else to do but write as much of the first draft as I can. Um, and so that, that helps because then there's nothing else distracting me. Uh, and it's a great excuse over the holidays when you go see your family and they say, well, don't you want to spend time with us? i sorry, I've got a deadline. I can't, I can't spend time with you at Christmas
1: Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. It's
0: just too busy. I hope, um, I hope they don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't
2: care. Um, so, so, you know, I try to do it that way. Um, but when I am writing during, during the time when I'm teaching, then, then the schedule is a little less regular because other stuff gets in the way. Um, and I mean, and, and even a writer who didn't have a job, um, stuff gets in the way. I mean, life always is getting in the way. You know, if somebody has kids or they have a sick parent or, you know, you have to go to the bank, you have to do whatever, um, there's always stuff you have to go to the bank and get a loan because you're a writer and you need money and you're borrowing money against your house or whatever you're doing. Um, but, but really, you know, like there's life is always going to get in the way. So I think that um, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing and being able to say, yes, this is, you know, I've got to set aside this little bit of time to get a certain amount of writing done. Most writers have to be able to do that because, like I said, even if you don't have a day job, There's something that's coming along and demanding your time, and you have to be able to juggle all those things.
1: Well, I think to get published, um, you know, like in the beginning, you have to write, you know, it's probably uh, easier isn't the right word for it, but you have to write, uh, you know, something competent, a competent genre novel. But to get to the level where you're at, you have to do something beyond that, and I'm just wondering if you feel you have a unique ingredient that has uh, brought you to the level that you're at.
2: Are you talking about something in the writing, or something about in my personality makeup, or or Or, anything, both? Yeah. or are you talking about my good looks? Which that will absolutely this far.
0: <laughs> Sleeping with the publisher. I don't
2: know. <laughs> now, now. Didn't you read my book? You're not supposed to do those nope. things. Oh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Slap your hand, um, your hand Al.
2: <laughs> if you're if you're talking about the writing itself, I mean, I think that I I've done a good job over the years, I think, of writing well about characters. Um, I think that I think good characters are are the lifeblood of good stories. Um, And I think I've managed to create good characters and to show, to write stories about um, characters who have uh, relationships and contact with people um, and the complications of those relationships. The kind of books that I write, like we said earlier, are about regular people, so they're not about spies and all that. It's not like you know, a, a detective novel where it's like the lone wolf detective going out mm. there and solving the crime with people who they don't really know that well. In my books, it's people who are connected to each other in some way. So there are undercurrents in those relationships, family resentments, family secrets, um, relationship problems, on and on. I think I've done a good job of presenting those relationships and those characters in that way. I think maybe that's a thing that's appealing about my books. You have, you'd have to go out and ask my five billion readers <laughs> to really find out what's going on, of course. That's right. Um, yeah. I mean, in terms of if it's something about my own makeup, I think it's just I am, you know, I, I was fortunate to, like I said, my parents read a lot when I was growing up. I was also fortunate to grow up in a – so I grew up in Cincinnati. I grew up on the west side of Cincinnati, which is the more blue-collar side of Cincinnati, And, you know, I grew up in an environment that was, and I grew up Catholic. um, And so, so there was a lot of, you know, um, there was a certain toughness and stubbornness in Mm -hmm. that environment um, that I think we all had to acquire to survive, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Being, you know, being around a lot of working class people, being in an abusive Catholic environment, you know, it was like there was a certain toughness required of us. And I think that, and that just stubbornness that, that stubborn determination to not quit um, came to me from my environment and from my family. Um, and that, that has kept me going for a long time. There's something to be said for stubbornness and determination more than anything else.
0: Absolutely. And for Catholics. Yeah. Well, <laughs> don't get me
2: started.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and so now what do you think about um, you know, the, the world today? You know, we have so much interaction with people that we don't know you know, like the, um, you know, social media and stuff, so and reviews and Amazon and all that stuff. So people can come along and see a book of yours and say, well, you know, David couldn't write if his life depended on it, and they can say all sorts of stuff. Um, ha- how do you deal with the interactions of social media?
2: And that's just my mother's review, <laughs> one saying I couldn't write this in my life. Imagine what strangers say. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. Part of it is that, I mean, I guess when I published my first books, it was right. I, my first book came out in 2008, so it was right on the brink of social media just becoming a thing. I mean, Facebook was around then, but for those first few books, there wasn't even that much promotion done on social media for those books. I mean, I posted about them, but it wasn't a regular thing. And I don't think there were a ton of authors doing that. Um, And, you know, Goodreads wasn't there. Amazon was there. but, But, you know, I don't know that we quite even back then were giving the same weight to the Amazon reviews and the stars and the algorithm and all that stuff. So I've been there for a little bit of the transition to this growing and growing and growing and growing like I can remember about five years ago having a meeting at my publisher and maybe it was like six years ago or something and Instagram came up and my the people on my on I'm putting it in air quotes my team they were like ah you know Instagram I wouldn't really worry about that much and then it was just like six months later it was like you better be on Instagram because Instagram's <laughs> exploding with books. So it's like, it's all changing very rapidly. Um, You know, I I certainly, it it makes it, I I would like to think, maybe I'm just telling myself this, it makes it easier to communicate with people about what you're doing. It makes it easier to say to people, hey, the book is out on Tuesday. Hey, you know, the book is on sale for $1.99 today. Hey, I'm doing a book signing in Dubuque tomorrow night. Uh, Hey, make sure you leave a review, whatever. I'd like to think that that's true, and we all tell ourselves that that's true. Um, I don't know if it's true, but we are telling ourselves that that's true. So I'd like to think those are the positive things. And then occasionally, you know, you do. You have direct communication with readers um, who can write to you and say, hey, the book is great. I love your books. I love whatever. Um, Sometimes people write and say, did you know that on page 299 there's a comma missing? Yeah. You get that, too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think, I think, you know, there's a downside to it, which is that as with many things in our world, we are, we tend to play to social media now. We tend to conflate the social media world with the real world. So if, you know, if Agnes from Boise writes a review on Goodreads that she didn't like your book, people get in a tizzy, oh no, Like, you know, especially if it's one of the first reviews that goes up on Goodreads or Amazon. It's like, oh, no, Agnes took you down. Agnes (laughs) took you down, right? What are we going to do? And it's like, you know, Agnes is just like one person out of 320 million people in this country. Let's not give Agnes too much power. Um, So (laughs) upsides and downsides, but nevertheless, it's here to stay. And I think writers have to... Just keep it in perspective that it 's not necessarily the real world um, it's don't don 't become too obsessed with it don't don 't let your self esteem rise and fall based on what um, people are saying in those places because like i said it 's not it 's not the real world, yeah,
0: and you know and I always just write back to Agnes look agnes don 't tell me how to write i don 't go to your job <laughs> and slap the sailor 's cock out of your mouth so you know. Exactly. You know. I
2: agree. <laughs> or I want to just say write your own damn book, Agnes. Yes. How, you know, leave me alone.
0: <laughs> That's right.
2: I mean, you know, Hemingway didn't have to put up with that. Yeah. You know, no it yeah. was people had Larry O'Connor didn't have people writing and saying, you know, stuff so anyways. Yeah.
0: Just just yeah. look. You know, Agnes. Yeah. Just just stick to your lane right? Um Right. Now it, it's interesting that you said uh how you like to kind of put things in compartments in your mind. So in your life, when things are going crazy, and that could be maybe outside things like COVID, for instance, or it could be, you know, some sort of shooting in your neighborhood or something's going on. So there's there's this outside stress. Um, Does that stop you or hinder you from writing? Or do, do you take that and put it into your writing?
2: Certainly that, that real life provides, can, real life gets in the way and provides obstacles. I mean, I remember when the pandemic was starting, um, I was, I was, that was when I was starting to write kill all your darlings. And I can remember just, I had to tear myself away from the news because that was the time where every day there was more, more news coming and more information coming. And we could all have just sat there hitting refresh on our computers to see more news coming in or whatever and I had to consciously tear myself away from that and, and there are and you know there are always these crises happening in life sick parents you know whatever stuff is always going on um, do I think it creeps into my writing in some way no doubt it does I mean no no doubt um, the anxieties and the fears that we all have seep into the books, even if we're not directly writing about them. Um, I think those things come in, and, and in, in some ways, I think that makes writing better. If I'm, ri- if I'm feeling a certain way, if I'm, if I'm grappling with something, and it's vivid and real to me, and somehow I work that into a story, even if it's not taking it on directly, um, if, that, if that is a real thing to me, or a real thing to someone I care about, then it's probably going to make the story better. Um, so, yes, sure, that stuff comes in.
1: Do you have a way to uh, recharge in between books, or do you just move on to the next thing?
2: I, I like taking a little bit of downtime. I mean, usually it's, it's, I, I'll read more, you know, in between, mm. just because it's a little harder to find time to read. I mean, I read every day. But if I'm busy and the day is full, then it like it's you're talking about like reading, you know, five pages before I fall asleep at night, you know, at those times. But between books, when there's a little more time, yeah, I like to read a lot like that. I think that's a great time to read and see what other people are doing um, to just kind of go back to the drawing board and see, you know, what is someone else doing with a story or just to read stories that are. Uh, very different than my own, or writers who are very different than I am, just to see what else is out there. I think it would be boring to read the same book all the time. So reading is always a thing to help with the escape, and and obviously you know watching watching TV shows, movies, all those things are nice ways to to recharge the batteries, but to still be seeing stories and thinking about stories, um, and 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 exploring different ways to tell stories, you know, why does this story that I'm reading work? Uh, And could I take something away from it? Why does this TV show work or why does it not work or whatever? Um, That's always stuff I like to do.
1: Do you read anything or have any influences that might be surprising to fans?
2: Oh, surprising? Hmm. (laughs) Well, when I I look back on my uh, uh, childhood, you know, the books that I read and fell in love with, when I was young, and maybe this is just something about childhood, um, were it was a lot of fantasy kind of stuff. Like I loved The Hobbit. I remember reading The Hobbit when I was a kid, and just mm. just being so. I, I remember I think I was homesick from school one day, and picked up The Hobbit and just like like practically read the whole thing in one day, um, and just loving that. And I love King Arthur stories and like King Arthur and his knights and that, so, so that, and I've never really written anything like that, and I don't think my imagination runs to stuff like that, even though to this day I will still read fantasy um, sometimes, but, but that, like, that was stuff that, that made me want to write, that, that made me fascinated by stories, and the way a story could transport you to a different place, because that's what those stories were doing, Um, and maybe that's just part of childhood that, that kids are fed up a diet of, you know, fairy tales and adventure stories and things, you know, kids aren't necessarily really reading uh, gritty realism. Although maybe maybe <laughs> now there's more and more of that, I don't know, because there's, there's more sophisticated stuff for kids now, I don't know.
0: Yeah. So what do you think your um, most important book is? The
2: most important? For,
0: to you. Like when you, oh, to me. when you look back at all of the the work you've done and you kind of go, what's your favorite maybe, or, or thing you, the book that you are most proud of?
2: It's tough to say because I have these different associations with them, which are not necessarily about the quality of the book, which I can't really see objectively. It's very difficult for me to know objectively what, what is the quote unquote best book. But I just have associations with the books. Like, for instance, you know, my first book that was published, which was published by a small press, um, like, obviously, that is a that has a very fond place in my heart because it was my first book. And because once I published that book or once that book was coming out, I literally was able to say, "Okay, you will not die without publishing a book. This this is happening. Check that off the bucket list. You're publishing a book. You will not die without publishing a book. So like things like that, Uh, Cemetery Girl was the first one that was published in New York. Um, And so, you know, so that was also a a significant step up and significant step forward. Um, So, like you know, so like that's one that stands out because of that. But I, I look back at the books and I can see things about all of them that that I'm proud of that 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 make them stand out. But a lot of them are associations with what was going on in my life as I was writing the book that don't necessarily have anything to do with the reader's experience of reading the book, as far as I can tell.
0: So you, you write a book each time you murder someone.
2: <laughs> well, I've, I frequently want to murder people. I will say that I, I have not to, to the best of your knowledge. I haven't done it, yeah, but yeah, um, we have
0: to keep that secret. We won't tell anyone. Yeah. Yeah. No.
2: Yeah. No, I I, wor- I always say this. I say people who write crime and horror and mystery and thrillers and that stuff, they're very normal people because they work it all out in the book. I mean if you want to if you're if you're thinking of killing somebody, you just kill them in the book. If you have a dark thought, you just put it in the book and then you know it's like going to therapy. You've worked hmm. it out and then you don't bring it into your real life so much.
0: Hmm.
2: Well, at least that's what I'm telling myself.
0: Well, that's what you, you know, yeah, you're in denial, but. You know. <laughs> I'm in denial.
2: And I, and I don't want to go to therapy. So I'm telling myself that the book is the therapy.
0: Yeah. Well, I wonder so when you are out at uh, the supermarket and, or you're driving in the road and someone cuts you off and there, there's someone that does something that's quite rude to you. Um, do you kill that character? Like do you take that person and make them a character in the book and, and give them a rough life.
2: I have certainly uh, based characters on people I don't like um, and um, written unflattering portraits of them in books. <laughs> um, but it's not usually the person who cuts me off in traffic because that person, that's impersonal. Like, I don't, I'm never going to see that person again. That's just, you know, that's just kind of impersonal rudeness to someone. Uh, I'm talking about killing people who I know well. In the books, um, that's that's where I dispatched the people who have who have been bothering me for years.
0: Mm. Um, yeah, so your mother? No, I...
2: not her.
0: Not She's her the one cutting she, you off on traffic.
2: He, well, thank God she doesn't drive anymore. Um, <laughs> she gave birth to me, so I kind of have to. I have her on a pedestal.
0: Well, uh, there you go. Yes. I mean, yeah, you, know. you know, and 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 I mean, if
2: you saw and if you saw my dad, I mean, she really, you know. To give birth to me, so anyway.
0: Yeah, she had to go through yeah. a lot.
2: He took one for the team. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have a way that you want people to come find you? Do you give out your street address, phone number, or do you have a website? <laughs> um,
2: Isn't everybody's street address public knowledge anyway, like mm, anybody could show just up? About, at
0: just about, just
2: yeah. um, about. I would prefer that they not come to my house. Um, I would prefer that they go to my website, which is DavidBellNovels.com, or they can find me on social media. I am on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and all of those are also at DavidBellNovels. And I'm on Goodreads. If you want to see me fight Agnes from Boise on Goodreads, (laughs) I'm on there too. Yeah,
0: oh, yeah. Take her out, boy, I'll tell you. Do you have, like, Tinder, Grindr, or any of those things too?
2: (laughs) I do, but I don't use my real name. Oh, of course not. So, I,
0: <laughs> You're Agnes. <laughs> See, my, my,
2: my wife isn't home, so I can say that. But no, I don't. I, I don't even. I don't even want to know what those things are about. Like I just, that's too much for me. I can't even deal with that. That's what my students teach me about that stuff. But it's not for me.
0: We'll have everything connected to ours as well, so people listening can go one click and stuff like that. Do you like the self-publishing <laughs> world? Do you, do you like the way people can just? you know, Joe Blow down the road can just go, well, I'm going to write a book and they write it and they just stick, send it to Amazon, stick it on and it's bad, badly written. And, you know, they drew the cover themselves and stuff. Do you, does this sort of, do you look it at that or do you think that, that that brings the standard down of writers?
2: I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. I used to be, you know, back, you know, like 15 years ago, Uh, but before Amazon really had their thing, people had to pay a lot of money to get Mm self-published. Like, like those old places, like what were they called? Like ex libris. And there were some old ones that, uh, author tree was that one. I don't remember what these were. There were some old ones where, I mean, like you had to shell out a lot of money to get published. And then there was nowhere for the book to be sold. So like you were just, you were just paying a lot of money to have 5,000 copies of a book in your garage. Right. Um, (laughs) I think now it's you know with the Amazon stuff and probably other outlets, you know I, I guess I say um, on the one hand it's it's eroded the standard a little bit because now everywhere you go you meet someone who's like oh yeah my cousin's an author you know my <laughs> my you know my my hairdresser sister is a poet you know whatever. Um, and I think the same is true in other art forms like, you know, music. It's like anybody can make an album. I'm putting it in air quotes. You can't see it. Anybody can make an <laughs> album. Anybody can do that now. Um, you know, so there's that. I mean, the, Democrat, the small D Democrat part of me, um, you know, like, why not? You know, why not? If somebody can go out and make an independent movie with their credit card and just make a movie, why shouldn't somebody be able to do that with books? Um, and, and, you know, why, and I think that that could be an outlet um, for you know, if someone can't find a publisher, if you're an established author and you write something that doesn't quite fit anywhere, um, if you just want to, you know, take a flyer and see what that's like, you know, it's, it's a viable option. I like the idea that authors have more options in that way than they used to. Um, there are fewer options in terms of bookstores and things like that, which is also disappointing, but you know, authors have some options about getting their work out. Whether anybody ends up reading it, I have no
0: idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. It's just um, I, I, because it also puts a lot of competition your way, right? I mean, uh, instead of just having the publishers putting out books, there's like a thousand new ones every day. Just, and so I would think that it would take away. Um, it's, it's harder to get the attention, right, of, of the customer it's
2: harder to get the attention and really the i mean i think the big thing is the is the price of the books that someone can publish on amazon or some publishers they'll just sell their ebooks for 99 cents or $1.99 or whatever and then if you're published with a big five publisher your ebook is being sold for 8.99 to 12.99 or whatever and constantly we hear oh well i'm not going to buy that because it's too expensive because it's nine ninety nine or twelve ninety nine or whatever and people are just reading the ninety nine cents or the dollar ninety nine ebook or the or the book that goes on sale I mean occasionally my books will you know you'll do have the you know the bookbub special or whatever where something's for sale I think that's really the big thing is that it's in a way it's devalued the cost of books that people think a book should be ninety nine cents um, and 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 they act like if I have to pay $10 for a book or $15 for a book, it's outrageous. Um, Maybe that's the biggest problem right there.
0: Okay. So now everybody in LA wants to know what David Bell, something that people don't know about you that you're going to uh, let us know. Well,
2: um, I, I like to walk in the cemetery by my house in the morning. And um, as I walk through the cemetery, Um, I look at the headstones and I, I do, I calculate how old the person was when they died. Um, And so it's a little math exercise to keep my brain sharp. But really what I'm thinking is I'm, I'm comparing my age to the age of that person who died. And if the person lived a nice long life, like, you know, someone who's over, (laughs) lived to be over 80 or whatever, uh, I take comfort in that, and then when I see someone who is my age or just a few years older than I am, I feel the cold, icy grip of terror seizing me. Um, so that's that's what I do in the morning. Well, that sounds
0: like fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. I, you know, watch yeah. the Adams family and go for a walk. Ooh. Yeah, that's right. what I do. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you.
2: It's very, it's quiet and peaceful in the cemetery in the morning. It's usually I'm there. Um, there are a couple of grave diggers there getting ready for the day's work. And there are always the same two widowers are there visiting their wives' graves. I noticed that um, I rarely see women visiting graves. I always see men visiting graves, and I don't know why wow. that is. I don't know if the women are happy that the men have died and they don't want to come <laughs> to the cemetery. Do uh, <laughs> Because you would figure there would be more women at the cemetery because men die sooner, mm-hmm.
0: yep, right?
2: Yeah. There are more widows than widowers, I would imagine. No, but you. Were, these are the things I think. Well, about you want
0: me? I can let you in on a secret. What's that? It's,
2: it's, it, they're, they're glad that their husbands are no, dead. And no, no, it's a big
0: hookup place on. for guys. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> That's why they're not. They're not. there visiting yeah. a grave. They're meeting. I'll meet you at this oh, grave. Okay. Come on, it's a hookup spot. <laughs>
2: Oh, okay. See, I, I mean, they. I've always, you know, my dad, before he died, he was in a nursing home for the last six months of his life. And, and I've heard this before, that in senior communities like that or nursing homes, there are so many more women than men. And it was true when my dad was in the nursing home, on his floor, there were maybe like six or seven men and 50 women, because the men were all dead by then, mm. you know, so... Mm.
0: Wow, I'm not touching that one.
2: So, so we we will be hot properties when we're like 85 yeah, years right. old and confined to a wheelchair. That's when you come into your prime. Well, yeah,
0: property. we've learned a lot, and I can't tell you. You know, um, it's been a very interesting show. And uh, God, you know, um, David Bell likes to eavesdrop, so watch out. Don't go sitting in the coffee shop. You see him; he's going to write about you. <laughs>
2: uh, well, I tell my students that if you're a writer you're allowed to eavesdrop. Yes. It's rude if you're not a writer, but if you're a writer, you're allowed to do that because it's research. Yeah,
0: so if you're not a writer, just publish a two-page thing on Amazon and you're a writer. <laughs> <laughs> there we have it. You heard it from the best. Um, our guest, David Bell, his new book, Kill All Your Darlings, is out now. Thank you for being here, Dave.
2: Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, David.
1: for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been
2: listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com.
1: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well,
2: yeah. Good night.